Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. My name is Deborah Khan. I am the founder of Being Patient. Today, we are kicking off our panel on achieving health equity in dementia care. And one of the things I love so much about my job is I meet really inspiring people um, to talk to. You're looking at them on the screen right now. The reason why um, this um, topic came up is because um, Being Patient launched a series on diversity and dementia. And I got to hear a lot of people's stories, um, problems and solutions. And I thought, how powerful would it be to have these people on one panel so we can really understand some of the problems in the system and some of the solutions. And I should say that this panel was generously um, uh, done in collaboration with Esai Inc., a human healthcare company. So we are grateful um, to Esai to for helping us raise this issue. So welcome to my guests. Um, I am going to introduce you all. Just wave when I introduce you. Um, Arthena Kasten is no stranger to being patient. She's been on um, several times. She is um, has been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and is a major advocate um, and recently appointed to the Dementia Council. Is it Athena um, for the G8? Yes, the World yes. Dementia Council. Which is amazing. Um, congratulations yes. to you. Um, um, next to Arthena is Dr. Fayron Epps. Um, Fayron has also been on being patient. Um, she was in um, healthcare as a, in nursing um, and later got her PhD and has articulated and formulated um, toolkits and programs for Black churches to increase awareness around dementia care. Welcome, Fayron. It's good to see you again. Um, and David Williams, who is a friend and um, so impressed with what David's doing. He is a uh, tech entrepreneur and has spent a long time in, in healthcare um, and has a platform um, which helps people keep track of everything to do with their health um, called Care3. Um, so welcome, David. Hello, hello. Okay, so let's kick off. Um, I want to start first with, let's start with the problem so that we can really talk more about solutions. Um, but, and Arthena, I want to talk to you because you and I have talked about this before. Um, as a Black woman who was experiencing memory issues in your early 50s, uh, how hard was it for you to get diagnosed? It was very hard. It was, it was, it was really hard. The problem was because I was so young, um, my doctor kept thinking, <laughs> I laugh about it now that I was just in menopause. And that was, I went through menopause for I don't know how long. 
And I just kept saying, this can't be real. Um, and he just kept saying, I, and I know the whole reason why now is because I was so young. He just could not believe or did not want to believe that uh, I was actually experiencing uh, early onset. And so that was a challenge within itself. And we went from that, because I think I actually, my husband said, now that he thinks about it, he thinks I probably started in my late 40s and going on. So I actually did not get the diagnosis until I was 51. And I had gone from so many doctors at that point, and they all kept saying the same thing. I think you're just in menopause. I think you're in depression. You know, it was everything except what the problem was. And so um, I was just lucky one day to hear someone talking about another doctor. I got referred to that doctor, and then he answered all the questions that I needed to know. So how, I mean, I, I remember you told me that, um, you know, you felt in some of those conversations, like it was difficult to get the doctors to take you seriously as a, as a black woman. And sometimes the conversation was even directed at your husband. Um, I remember you saying that, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Like, why was it always like, oh, it's just menopause and not, why do you believe, you know, it wasn't really like, this is Arthena and I know myself and I'm having problems. Why was that so hard for doctors to believe? Um, I think number one, because the first thing they wanted, to, they wanted to diagnose, diagnose it as everything else, except, except that, um, you know, you had every reason to tell me I had a problem. And, and I constantly think back now to when I speak to my other friends, and I hate to say that, who are um, of other races, especially the Caucasian race, the first time they went into the doctor and told them I had this problem, it was automatically, well, let's do some testing on this. Let's do some testing on that. Let's do some testing. I went to my doctor for almost two years and he never asked me for any testing, never thought about anything to ask me for any testing. And even when I would say, uh, or we would, you know, bring it back to talking about my husband, it was like, well, are you stressed? Are you, st it was always about a stress issue. You know, it was everything except it was, it was I'm always looking for the negative, but it, then it came down to me and I started saying to my husband, we have good insurance. Why am I not getting tested? Why am I not getting treated the same way as some of my cohorts? And it got to be real frustrating after that. Because it's when you're dealing with the same doctors, and then it got to the point where it's like, well, if you I went to one doctor, and I remember he said, well, you need to see this doctor, but um, he doesn't take Medicare. And I thought, I don't have Medicare. So why would I, why, why would that even be a, a point here in this situation? It, it's always, it always seemed like it rolled back to, did I have the money? Yeah. That's, that's, that's just the way it was, was do you have the money to take care of these things that you need. You do know MRIs are very expensive. That's fine. My insurance would pay for me to get an MRI. I, that's frustrating now. And, and it's, it's even more frustrating now when I talk to people who I know are like me, who are my same color, and they're going through that same issue right now. It's not about anything else except do you have the money to pay for the testing? That's it. So David, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is like the conscious and unconscious bias that's packed into the system. And that's, you know, reasons behind why it is harder for African-Americans to get diagnosed. Tell us a little bit about the conscious and unconscious bias that's packed in there and, and maybe some examples that you've seen. 
Absolutely. I think what we have to recognize is that anytime we interact with the healthcare system, we're talking to people who are extremely smart and study data, cohorts, populations, and how they behave. And that information can benefit us individually as patients. But at the same time, if those populations are still not constructed in such a way that represents what the general population is, or someone who is more like you in Arthena's case, we're talking about the ability to introduce systemic unconscious and unconscious, which are then also gets to the conscious bias of it, because of those data sets. So for example, if you look at the participation of African-Americans in clinical trials, and I bet you Fairon knows way more about this than I do. But one of the things that I've always noticed is that there's always a small number, especially in the largest disease area in the United States, which is cardiovascular disease, about two and a half percent, according to the FDA, of the populations who participate in those trials are African-American. But when you think about who has a more prevalence in their population of having cardiovascular disease, it's African-American. So what happens? You have a mismatch in the population that's being you know, tested in trials and the people who are getting treatments. And one size does not fit all. So what happens is that introduces unconscious bias when somebody is trying to introduce a treatment for you because the population may not actually be reflective of your experience. So that's just one example. Okay, we're, and we're gonna come back, um, but I, I saw um, Fairon enthusiastically nodding as you were um, talking about this. Do you wanna add to that, Fairon? No, I just totally agree. I just had a conversation this morning about how can we get um, more people enrolled, but also not putting it on the burden of the people um, of the communities of color, but also the researchers and the scientists on the other end, making sure they introduce these opportunities and educate the communities that we really need to have participation in these clinical trials. So when we have treatments, and programs and interventions that we know that it will also work for them as, as well. And we're not just, my thing is, <laughs> if you're not participating in the trial, you formally, informally, you're participating in the trial because you're gonna be receiving some treatment <laughs> that was never um, tried on, on uh, your population or your group. And so, you know, however it goes, if we look at it like that, we should want to participate. And so we can help change the mindset of healthcare providers so they can see um, a different narrative. And so then they will be better informed on how to interact with all persons. So how do you change that mindset? I mean, that's that's really at the crux of the matter, right? How do you change a mindset? It's not an easy thing to do. It's not. And um, I'm not sure if the question was for me, Deborah. No, <laughs> please, I'd love to hear it. from all of you. Yeah. But, you know, I, I that's really, I think a lot of us know that this problem exists, right? And that is the big question. How do we change the mindset? And I will tell you personally, um, what I've done and my team has done is we've taken a different approach and now we feel that, okay, it's hard for us to change the health system. There's how are we gonna reach all of these physicians or providers, I should say. But let me reach the caregivers and let me empower the caregivers 
with the right tools, the right knowledge that they need. So when they interact like Arkina did, and they can say, wait, I have this insurance and this is what my insurance covers. They can also demand, you know, again, a power, they can speak up. Um, and so that's part of the thing I have going called caregiving while black, but it's my answer, my team's answer to how we can change the system. And it's us empowering the black, the black patients, black caregivers to interact with the health system with some knowledge and mm -hmm. demand. And I, I did say demand, demand is kind of harsh, but I, I, I mean, I mean it. So they can demand the care that they deserve and need. Yeah, and absolutely. And one of the things for those of you who don't know what Feyron um, is doing, she has really articulated dementia care programs and, and actual toolkits um, and is um, really distributing them and educating Black churches um, in order to kind of take some of the taboos out of um, people living with dementia and really aiding people in terms of understanding, am, am I getting this right diagnosis and care throughout the journey? Is, is that correct to say, Fearon? So, so David, tell us a little bit about changing the mindset as well, because I know, you know, you're passionate about giving people the tools vis-a-vis um, -vis data. Um, so tell us a little bit about how, you know, I, I mean, Arthena obviously is, is very educated on the disease now, but when she was first entering, was there a way to give her a different experience? Like, should she have known something that she didn't know at that time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a very clear philosophy about how data works for us as individuals, as well as for populations. But when you think about, you know, historically in general, how do you overcome bias of any kind? It's through data. It's through information. It's the ability to say, how can I influence the person who is making a decision about me? And how can I do it in such a way that is focused on me? What CARE3 does is it gives you a platform to capture your personal experience and we structure it into data. So what we wanna do is to say, when that doctor or when that provider is making a decision about your treatment or your course uh, that will happen in your action plan, the biggest influencer will be you because they will have a clear picture of what's happened to you maybe since your last visit or over time if it's your first visit. Because that way, they know the decisions that are making are going to be personalized. The first way to get ahead of the bias is to make sure that every decision is being made on your experience. Then they can use that their big brains and all of the information that they have at their disposal to be informative about those decisions. But if you don't go to the doctor or don't have a telehealth session armed with your own data, your own experiences, then you've essentially said to that provider, well, go in all these other directions and, and, and in your judgment, do what's best for me. And Let's, here's how we can win because they all want to personalize our care. Okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit because I think that's really important. Um, I mean, it's it's astonishing that Arthena had, it was two years, she was seeing doctors for two years and no one was taking her serious that she was, experiencing memory problems. So what does that look like? I mean, what, what could she have brought to the appointment to say, listen to me? I mean, I, I can't believe, I mean, Arthena, I can't believe it took two years. That's <laughs> like huge. That's a long time 
in this disease, you know, two years is a long time. And we hear, and she's not the only one. We hear this over and over again. Like women who are younger, who are experiencing uh, memory problems, they're always told it's menopause, but mm. it's not menopause. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I would ask Farron, I mean, I would ask you, Athena, first, like, how did you get over the hump finally? What did you tell your, your care team that they finally said, you know what, this is, we need to test. What, what happened there? And then I can come back and say, this is, this is maybe how we can help other people avoid that same, that same journey that you had to take. I wouldn't want to say that in public. No, no, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have to go on mute for that. <laughs> I'm sorry, what happened? Um, my father had had, uh, uh, David, my father had had Alzheimer's and six of his brothers and sisters had, had it also. So I knew what it was. I knew when I, I, you know, when I started, I knew what my symptoms were. Maybe. The only thing that was different between me and my father was because he was in his seventies and I was in almost in my late, I mean, my early fifties. That was the only difference. So at, when it got to the point where it's just like, I'm constantly going, constantly going, I was getting frustrated at that point because I was still working. I had a hard job that was, it was just really, everything was just not working out. And I finally just said, listen, this is not working out. I, I'm not, this is not working out. You can't keep telling me. I had gotten to the point where I was going to the doctor like every week. And my husband, every two weeks, and my husband kept saying, you're going to the doctor every two weeks. You're coming on with a different pill every two weeks but you're not changing. Everything is still the same. And at that point, I just said, listen, this, this isn't working. This is not working. I either need to find a new doctor or this is just not, and I had had this doctor for like 18 years. I, you need, I need to find a new doctor. At that point, he went on to send me over to a neurologist who sent me on to a neuropsychiatrist. And that's when things finally started rolling. But I had gone to him and I was teasing him now because he's still my doctor. He just kept saying, you can't be, you can't be, this, this can't be, you cannot have a memory issue. You can, he just, he was so caught up in this menopause thing. That that's all he saw was menopause. That's it. Mm. And the menopause thing, and we laugh about it now. And I finally said, how long am I supposed to be in menopause? Because I've been in menopause a long time, you know, but I wasn't having the, the excuse my, the hot spells or anything like that. And I kept saying, how long am I supposed to be in menopause? And he finally just said, let me try something else. I mean, but this notion that women just completely can't remember anything during menopause is, I think, being played up a little bit too much. You know, it's not like all of a sudden you go into kind of what's mimicking neurodegeneration. I mean, it's just like a little bit crazy to make that presumption. But what's astounding to me too, David, is this is a woman who has a history of Alzheimer's in her family over and over again. And she's saying, I'm having cognition problems and no one's believing her. Right, I mean, we can get into that. That is conscious bias. That is not unconscious, it's conscious. And, 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 and you know, Arthini said so, like, it can't be, so let me not even go there. That is actually a conscious decision, right? But you did this, the thing that you did was you brought your family history to it. That's data, right then and there. And then the next thing you did was you actually advocated for yourself by saying, I need to find another doctor because believe me, that got the attention of your doctor because something wasn't right. You kept saying over and over and giving proof in the way that you were, you know, just saying, 
this is a problem in my work. This is a problem at home. My husband is recognizing this as well. It's not working. And I think it's that self-advocacy that we as people also find very difficult when we're interacting with the healthcare system. And so what I advocate for is for people to use their own experiences like you did and put it into structured data because that's what doctors hear. That's what they see. If you could say, look, over the last week, I've had four times my husband said that I um, had a memory issue and it was on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday. Right. And this was the issue each time because we wrote it down. Then that becomes indisputable evidence. It does. I have a friend and he she says all the time, and Fayron knows her, my friend Terry, she always says, you have to be your own self-advocate. You have to be. You there's no if, ands, and buts about in that. But I recently read an article no longer than I think it was two or three days ago. And the first thing they said was it was about Alzheimer's. And they said, if you are a woman and you're having memory problems, it's probably menopause. This was not even three days. <laughs> no, it's not. That is not the case. That's not, but it was an article in a magazine and they were really serious about that. I thought. I Maybe think I'm we gonna, need to go to know. more doctors who are over like postmenopausal. <laughs> like maybe that's women doctors. <laughs> Even if it were menopause, the whole I, the whole idea of self advocacy is not yeah. is 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 not restricted to any diagnosis. I mean, as an activity. So I think you're hitting the point there, which everybody should know. You should be your your, your best advocate. But I think that your ability to capture your experience in such a way that convinces a doctor to take the next step is your self-advocacy. I just advocate for people using it with data. That's really, I think, where I stand. Um, you know, my line is the best way to get a doctor's attention or a nurse or a therapist is by giving them data because two things. One, they'll be shocked that you have it in that kind of format, first and foremost. But secondly, that's just how they're comfortable dealing with problems. If you give them data, they're outstanding. But they need that from us. Is anybody speaking their language? <laughs> so, how exactly. do we, so I guess my thing is, David, is um, you know that's great. But how do we get black caregivers, um, black individuals, to understand that concept? How do we get them to know that they can bring this to the doctor? Like they have a, a voice. I mean, I think by um, with my my background as a nurse and just interacting in the healthcare field and the healthcare community, there's so many people that feel like, oh, all right, they have a white coat on, they're right. And I'm gonna yeah. listen to them, you know, um, and even in my own family, well, whatever the doctor says, but they don't wanna bring that data. They don't wanna speak up neither. And I think that's where we find a lot of, um, I guess I'm not gonna say inequities, but like we we just listen. You know, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. It's hard for me. Right. Just like you know, I'm from down south. Right. Right. My, my, what you said, Arthena? The doctor's always right. That always doctor's right. right. Yeah. And 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 you know, I'm I'm from down south, and my family's from the rural part of Louisiana. And I'm telling you, whatever that white coat says, that's what it it is. And to mm -hmm. me, we almost got the we got the fix that 
we we have to empower our people so they'll know that no that's not the case mm. in fact they probably only took one class that's probably 30 minutes on dementia or whatever that you know specific condition you have and so it's really up to us to incorporate data to incorporate other things and um to bring that to the table mm -hmm. so we can get uh equal treatment and really have that opportunity to continue to to thrive i think your work hits right at that cultural issue going to the churches where there's another voice of authority that people respect you know the pastors the the entire set of clergy the folks that are there that's what makes that such a powerful venue through which to communicate um, in terms of getting cultural messages across i find that uh, I've actually pursued trying to talk to the churches about data, you know, because data is a, is a far concept to people. They're just like, what do you mean data? And I'm saying, no, it's your experiences, really. It's just essentially given in a way that it's structured in a way that a doctor is going to understand what you're saying. It doesn't come off as ranting, because that's really what we're also trying to do. Um, in one of the other webinars, actually, I think, Deborah, you, you, you attended this one. I talked about that white coat. I was like, the problem is, in some cases, it's also like a white hood. And we have to make sure that's not the case too. Wow. Because we wow. have to make Wait, sure. Pause, David, pause. I just need you to pause one second. You know, write that down. Wow. I think the audience needs to let that sink in. They like, wow. The idea of bias. So let's let's talk about that. Let's unpack that there, because I think that's also we've we've all the three of us have all talked about uh, the four of us uh, in different ways, talked about the historical challenges, um, especially within the black population and science. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that, because there's a history of mistrust that is already being passed down through generations. How, is it possible to make a new start? Or like what you just said, David, which is so powerful, like the white coat representing something that is very white and not, you know, speaking the same language and which has symbolisms of past history. How how do you even start to deal with that? That's a that's a very long historical mistrust of people and the system. So how, how where do we address that? How do we address that? And I'm I'm putting it out to all three of you. As the <laughs> um, if I had all the answers, <laughs> um, uh, but I think the the way that I've always approached it is one, you obviously get the benefit of the doubt first. I mean, but the best way to self-advocate, which we all would agree that should be the behavior that we adopt, that self-advocacy, however you do it, you have to do it and it will end up working in your favor, whether it becomes I need to still switch doctors because you're not listening to me. You're not taking my experience into consideration or the doctor does. And you end up getting on a path where you can have that discovery. You can have the diagnosis occur as it's supposed to and in a timely fashion so that you can still live your highest quality of life given that situation. You know, the self-advocacy I think is the behavior. If we can get people to say, I can speak up for myself, Fair on to your point. I can, and here's a way to do it, 
that arms them with that kind of, of interaction and confidence when they're talking to that doctor who's in a position of authority. So, go ahead. Now, I was going to flip it, you know, that's us speaking to the, the patients, but, you know, for those that are tuning in that are wearing that white coat, right, and, and, and want to do better, because they have some that want to do better and they want to make the change. I always tell practitioners and clinicians or those that are serving a diverse population, acknowledge don't just go in the community or go in your and just know that, oh, well, that's a long time ago and it should be different now because it's 2021. It's not different right now. And so I think you need to acknowledge that that did occur. And if your patient brings it up, it's okay to talk about that. You know, and the problem is just like a lot of practitioners don't like talking about religion and spirituality, but is these are things okay because if it's important for that patient, then it's important to their plan of care. And I think they need to be able to talk about that and then also listen, listen how this history has impacted them. And then they'll know how to, how to treat that patient. Arthina, I want you to talk to us about, have you, you've participated in clinical trials, I think, am I correct? Actually, I'm getting ready to be in a new one. They have a new one out that's out, I think it's called Ideas. Um, that's very, very, uh, I, I'm hoping everybody in there, mom and sister and brother can get in that because it is geared toward us that we have so many, the, the problem with clinical trials and I've talked to many people and not only for Alzheimer's or it's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That's the first thing they say. And then when you start saying, well, why won't you try it? Then you start hearing these all off the wall, crazy, you know, it's just almost like the, the issue we have now with the, with the, with the uh, getting the, the shot for the virus. It's always, it's always a reason you don't want to try it. But my, my, my point is why not try and think about a reason to get it instead of not getting it? You know, my husband says all the time, he was trying to have this conversation. He said, why not try? Why not try? Because he re reflected it back to the boss. He said, don't be in a situation where you don't know, but you're speaking about something you don't know. So, you know, first for a while, when I started trying to get the, the, the trials or get in the trials, I was like, oh no, you can't get it because you have epilepsy and you can't, you know, you can't take the medicine with this. And it was going back and forth and back and forth. I was like, okay, that's fine. But as soon as they started offering me a clinical trial that said, Athena, you can get in it. We have new medicines coming out. Mm -hmm. Because as I said, when I spoke to the FDA, I said, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. And I, and I encourage us, as African-Americans, I encourage us, I plead with us, not only African-Americans, but anybody, get in the trial, try the trial. If it's not for you, they'll let you know it's not for you, it's not working, And but you've learned something. I never understand people who said now, first, like I said, I was kind of, I don't know, but you know, as I said, I have nothing to lose with the trial. If they offer me every trial there is, I'm going to take it. Did you have a fear of science at all before you participated in a trial? Not really. Not really. I've never really had a, a fear of it. I just, it was so many, the only problems I had with trials is because, as I said, uh, 
I had been diagnosed with epilepsy. So a lot of the medicines I, I could not take, I, or they would say I would have to stop taking my epilepsy medicine to be in the trial. And I was thinking, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to stop taking my epilepsy medicine. So that was totally out. And that put me out of a lot of trials. But now, I, you know, I'm coming in and they're saying, oh, that's fine. You can still take it. And, and then I, and I take it and not have a problem with it. As I said, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it to people all over, you have nothing to lose, especially with a disease as powerful as this one, as condition. This is, this is something that we cannot, I mean, there is no cure right now. We need to be have as many trials and do as many things that we can to stop this. And with our numbers being so high, and when I say our numbers, I'm speaking of, especially on African-Americans, we need to get in these trials. Yeah. We speak about that all the time. We need to get in these trials. We really do. What is what have you gotten out of the trials that you've participated in? I mean, you know, did you get information about your health and you know the state of your brain? Like, what types of feedback did you get? Well, the first one I took, um, it took me a while to get in. It gave me uh, because you know, for the new drug that just came out, you have to have like a, a pep. Pep, I can never. Pep scan, yeah, Adjuhelm you're talking about. Right. You yeah. need to have all these powerful tests. And to be honest, those tests cost a lot of money. Whether well, one trial I got in, it paid for all of that. It, everything was paid for. So I didn't have to worry about, hmm, I can't afford that test because it cost $7,000. And several people who I know who are either preparing for the trial or in the trial, have had no problems with it. So again, why why say no? Why say no? When later on, I you know, I'm always the one who wants to say, I'm gonna be the, the first one that says I'm cured. I may not be, but at least I try. Mm -hmm. That's just what I feel. And that's an important point. And also, um, you know, David, one of the things that I kept thinking as Arthena's speaking is. You know, she, she part of the data is also like, look, I have a history of epilepsy. I've been on this medication. Is that what you mean as well? Like come prepared with all of these details about your own health, because chances I find like in the care of my mom, um, oftentimes those doctors don't read the what's in their electronic medical records, right? So you really have to say, look, this is what she's had, or this is what, right? So. So is that what you mean? It's like, it's not only having to do with Alzheimer's, it has to do with everything. This is a profile of my health, right? That's right. I mean, when you go to the doctor, typically, especially if it's your first time, they want you to fill out a family history, right? They want to have record of what your family history is. What I'm saying is that you can go in with any kind of history. You can have your family history. You can have your last three months history. Whatever way it can be you know, articulated to somebody who can help you try to help them, uh, but it gets them to know you better so that they can customize their, their, their treatment uh, and their action plans. And all of those things are important because the less you trial and error, the better you have a you know, longer quality of life, higher quality of life. That's what you want you know, less of. So the thing that I find is also difficult about the medical system is that it's silent. You know, you find that everybody has a specialty. And so it's hard to say if I have like, I mean, you know, dementia and epilepsy are, are lucky you're going to deal with a neurologist most likely in, in both cases, but it, you'll have cases where somebody has, you know, cardiovascular disease and they have dementia. And so when you have to deal with both of those, 
both of those practitioners are going to want to know what the other are doing and they do want to understand your experience across both because it can impact what medications i'll recommend it can impact how long or what dose um, it can impact the meta you know the actual meta you know your metabolic rate how well you metabolize certain medications I am like, ah, <laughs> um, live shows. Um, so the thing that about um, about sharing all this information really is for your own benefit, but it does help doctors, especially when they're not in the same specialty, make better decisions and more personalized decisions, because that's the goal. Otherwise, they might try something and you have an adverse event on a medication and they don't want that. They don't want that at all. So um and, and I love those suggestions, but Feyron, I want to talk about, because you and I have talked about this um, before, is like the stigma of, uh, I have dementia, right? There's big stigma. So like when we were talking about this, um, you know, you said a lot of people within their own families don't want to even go there, right? So with your experience of what you're doing in the Black churches, how do you take the stigma away from saying I have dementia. I mean, because if you can't even say it, I mean, you're not even gonna go, you're not gonna forget the trials, you're not even gonna get the treatments, you know? And so how how do you break down um, those barriers within stereotypes? So we can no longer be silent. Um, and I was gonna piggyback on what David said, and this leads right into the stigma. You know, um, as I was developing this Caregiving While Black course, one of the things in me working in the community, working with families um, that are facing dementia, um, I don't want nobody in my business, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a barrier to so much, a barrier to life planning, a barrier to getting treatment, just a barrier to getting help. It's because, especially we as Black people, we are very private and we don't want no one in our business, even if they're blood related. We don't want them in our business. And I'm just being honest. And, you know, others may feel that as well. But I know particularly in my family, I don't want nobody in my business. But we have to break that cycle. And, you know, by us having these conversations, that's why I go out. I'm going out tomorrow. I'm going out Saturday, paving the ground to have um, speak on dementia awareness, to speak on brain health, um, to have these conversations. And I know immediately... They're not going to be like, yes, I, I deal with that. But I have to tell you, months down the line, they will come to the church. I had a, a caregiver call me last week and I was like, okay, well, when, you know, how has, what has this come about? And she said, well, you know, my pastor, he has been talking about dementia for a while. And she just been sitting back listening, you know, and she said, but I finally reached out to him and told him I'm a caregiver and I need help. And then that pastor bishop put her in touch with me. Um, to me, that was a win, right? Because she now finally said, you know what? The pastor did great because he's not, I'm not saying he's normalizing it, but he's letting them know this happens. You can talk about it. I'm here for you. She felt that comfort level. And then now she's able to, to get help. And so it's, it's, a, it's a slow process. And people say, how many... How many people are you impacting? How many people you're changing their minds? It's not about the, the, the number, right? If I feel like I'm changing one person, then I know that person is going to be able to help the, the next person. So point blank is, Arthena, let them people in your business, okay? 
don't have no problem because you know, I told the very first time I, I the very I first time we met, but yeah. I told her, I said, we've always had that what stays, what goes on in my house stays in my house. This is this is not something that's just starting. This has been something that's been going on since slavery. That's that's just the way we started. It started in slavery and it kept on going. So I have no problem. Savon has known me. I don't know how long that's been, well over a year or so. And I've always been a person that's been very talkative. I, I I tell people what's going on. I have no problem with it. And when I speak to people, when I speak to large groups, I always get that reaction at the end. Can I speak to you? Can I talk to you? Can I have your telephone number? Yes, you can. You can have my telephone number. I'm gonna give Fayron number two. Mm-hmm. And she does. <laughs> <laughs> we I give I'll stop short of publishing your phone number. <laughs> but that's amazing. And what you all are saying is it really does start at the grassroots level, right? It's like, it does. And, and I totally get what you're saying. I'm half Asian and it's the same in the Asian community. When you have something wrong with the brain, it's not something that's talked about. We keep it in the family, right? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden the person doesn't go out anymore and you just, you keep it in the family. And it does make the journey and the process so much more difficult. I mean, doesn't it feel good to talk to other people, right? Who, I mean, with all of your advocacy, all three of you, I mean, when you when you realize you're, you're telling people it's not a bad word, it's okay, you know, it, it does feel good. It is empowering um, to- What makes it so sad though, though, Deborah, you know what makes it so sad is that we have this, so much in the brown, and I say the brown, not only African-Americans, not only Latin, it's, it's the brown people. Because when I go to places where I have gone, I think I spoke to someone, it was like 900 people, and all the Caucasians had no problem telling me. They was all over. Can we talk? They have no problem. When I go, I have, I have been places where I have been the only African-American there speaking and talking. But they have no problem telling the story. But us as African-Americans and people of brown, this this is what they're doing the whole time. And they may come out after everybody has walked off and said, can I talk to you? They're not gonna come out when a lot of people is there. They may slip you their telephone number or something like that, but they do not. It's just like, we have to keep this secret. It's a secret. I don't want nobody to know. You're not going to tell nobody, are you? Yeah, okay, I won't tell nobody. And this is what's going on. Yeah. So what you do think, you... Arthena? Um, I'm sorry, Deborah. Go, 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 go. So do you think, you know, as, as you were talking, Arthena, you know, I'm thinking this really has something to do with um, our history. So it's, it does. even go beyond what stays, what, what happens in the house stays in the house. It also, do we, in the society that we are in right now, even in my role working at the university and as an assistant professor, I don't want to show a sign of weakness. I don't want to show that I, somebody can challenge me and maybe I'm not up to par mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and me as a person, um, I don't want that to happen. And as I'm hearing you speak, I'm able to really sit back. And now, you know, maybe that that could be the case. And wow, then, yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. Because the thing is, Favron, and I know you know it, the thing is, is when I'm speaking with 
my members of, of the board or whatever, you know what they always say to me? They always say, we really like you, Athena, because you speak out, you talk, you say what's on your mind. And I'm thinking, uh-huh, I do. I always have. Feyron teases me about it all the time, but I always have. I've been that person who speaks out and will say what's on my mind because you hiding it is not going to change it. And if I can get the people who come to listen when I'm speaking, if I can get them to say, I have a problem, can you help me? Or someone will give them someone else's, give me, you know, my number is transferred all over. And I don't have to know who I'm talking to on the phone. But I love the fact that they are calling because as Feyron said, if one person will call, then they'll tell somebody else and somebody else will tell somebody else. And that's where we have to start. Being weak is in this society this day is hard. But you know what? I would rather, when I met a mother the other day whose son I think was 28 and he had been diagnosed with early onset. Wow. That was the most astonishing thing to me. But it's happening younger now. So at some point in time, somebody has to let go of that weakness and say, you know what? It is what it is. I see you nodding your head, David. Oh, yeah. No, I, the thing about family caregivers being the people who also need to be let in, but then also have access to those experiences too, because a lot of times what happens is and this happened with my grandmother as well as my mother prior to her passing, she was um, showing her uh, signs of dementia um, that they can't recall things in the doctor's office. And so having a family member, your adult children usually are, are those who can also say, or, you know, or a spouse who can also say, hey, look, these are the things that are happening. And, you know, we're, we're, we're recording it because we want to make sure we have some record. Letting those people in so that they can do those things uh, to have that information can also be really helpful. Um, and it's hard even, yeah, I know it was hard for my mother, but it is hard for um, people who took care of you, changed your diapers, uh, mm -hmm. to not only deal with, you know, their, you know, uh, their own health issues, but then to have to kind of change a role where their, their child has to step up and, you know, somehow they feel like they're, they're, they're a failure at that point as a parent. And, you know, what I had to tell my mother and, and even now my father is that, that's not the case at all. I mean, you you help shape us. We want to help you live the best life you can live. And that's our job now. And that's okay. Um, so the ability to let those people in who care for you and have high motivation um, to uh, collect information, to share that with a care team can also be immensely helpful. Yeah. So much starts in the family too. And I love like what all of you have said. And I, I mean, I, I found this conversation incredibly important and uplifting. Um, I wholeheartedly thank all of you. You both, all three of you to me are true inspirations. Um, I was determined to have a panel to talk about solutions as well. Uh, we know the problems do exist. It will take time, but it's going to take people like you who are working at the grassroots level to really inspire others um, to change the whole system of how things work. So I'm grateful, um, David, our Dina, Veyron, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an important topic and conversation.
Um, so thank you. Um, to those of you, um, I want to, we have another talk coming up where um, this afternoon in a few hours time at uh, 2 p.m. Um, Pacific time, uh, five o'clock Eastern, we are going to interview Ronald Reagan's um, daughter, Patty Davis. So please join us for that talk as well. Um, as we know, the former president was um, impacted and, and, and died of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but until then, um, we look forward to more information. Thanks very much to um, our partner in collaboration, um, Isai Inc., a human healthcare company for this talk as well. So thank you all three um, to our guests, um, really inspiring and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T.com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.